Amazing grace. We could probably all recite those words from heart, couldn't we? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We know those words, but I wonder how many of us are still amazed by grace. How many of our hearts are still captivated by the beauty and the wonder and the splendor of God's grace shown toward us in the gospel? That song goes on to say, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." And you say, wait a second, how does grace teach my heart to fear? Well, this is what happens when you encounter the holy God as Dan preached on a week ago. The God who is thrice holy, 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 holy is he. He is totally pure and unique and righteous and perfect and without equal, which is why the prophet Jeremiah can say, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. See, when we encounter grace, We are taught to fear. This is the God who created the entire universe by the power of his word. He speaks and galaxies are born. He beckons and stars come into the night sky. He holds the the, the hearts of kings in his hand and he turns them wherever he pleases. He speaks and storms stop. The howling winds and the rolling waves answer his every command. I don't know if you noticed, we got a snowstorm this week. And uh, it was all summoned by him, such that not a single snowflake fell apart from his divine decree. See, our best meteorologists can but try to predict how much snow we're going to get, and our best city workers can clear the snow from the streets as quickly as possible. But God alone is able to speak, and the snow stops instantly. This God can walk upon the waters of the Sea of Galilee as if it is a well-beaten path, which is a reminder that The the sea and the earth is literally under his feet. And so when we approach a being of this power and magnitude, there is a natural and right inclination to fear. It is grace that teaches this to us. Because we have sinned against him. We have all transgressed his ways. We have rebelled against him. We have done what is right in our own eyes. And the holiness of God means that he cannot sin, but also that he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. He must punish it. The psalmist says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Habakkuk says, his eyes are too pure to see evil. He cannot look upon wrong. And yet the Bible also tells us that he sees all things, knows all things, and is perfectly just in all things. Each one of us, to a certain degree and a certain extent, are comfortable being around sin. With those around us and with our own hearts, we are comfortable with sin. We can kind of be around it to a certain degree, but not so with God. Remember, as Dan said last week, God is not like us. Even the tiniest hint of immorality on the screen or on our lips, even the smallest theft with our hands, even the tiniest bit of pride in our hearts is utterly revolting to God and he cannot tolerate it. Even the smallest hint of sin deserves eternal separation from him and divine judgment. And if that sounds harsh, it's because we don't know what the Bible says well enough and we don't know the God of the Bible well enough. He is 
holy. And he says, be holy like I am holy. Which means that the believer is one who is growing all the more to hate sin like God hates sin. It is not a sign of spiritual maturity to be more comfortable being around sin. That's actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. But this doesn't mean that we just kind of retreat and say, well, okay, if I can't be around sin, then I'm, I see ya, because we'd come to find out that sin is within our own hearts, but also because that's not what God does. The God who says he cannot tolerate sin in his presence draws near to you and I. These words, Dan read them last week, Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. The God who is so holy that he cannot even look upon sin draws near to sinners. The utterly perfect and righteous king draws near to the rebels who have committed treason against his rule. That is amazing grace, but it also presents a massive problem. How does that happen? How does the holy God draw near to sinners? If you're here today, and uh, I, don't, I don't know what your uh, view of the Bible is, maybe you're here today and you don't know a whole lot about what the Bible says. In fact, maybe you've never really opened it. Maybe some of you are here today and you've read through the Bible many times over. Regardless of where you're at, I'm really happy you're here. And the driving question of the Bible the thing that, that propels the narrative of these pages. The driving question is this, how can sinful people be present with the holy God without being utterly consumed and eternally condemned? That is the question that drives the narrative of scripture. In Genesis chapter one, we are encountered with the holy God who creates all things. And yet just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, the first human beings had rebelled against him and plunged creation into chaos from our point of view. They said they knew better than God. They said they could do better than God and they could find more joy somewhere else than in God. And this tragic mistake has reverberated throughout every single heart to every single corner of the earth ever since, including in my heart and in your heart. And so the question is, how can we be right with God in spite of this? And the way that you answer that question will make all of the difference for eternity. Some answer the question by having too high of a view of themselves. Maybe this is where you're at this morning. Maybe you look around at other people sitting around you and you say, actually, look at so-and-so over there. I'm a lot better than they are. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But what that's like is like the Cleveland Browns sitting at home and saying, hey, we beat the Bengals twice this year while watching from home during the playoffs. We look around and compare ourselves to others without even realizing we have missed the mark entirely. The Bible says that uh, right, we, sometimes we think, well, I can be good enough to get to heaven. At least my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. But the Bible says this drastically misunderstands just how sinful and wicked we are. Because Genesis 6 says, God saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The Bible says no one does good, not even one in Romans 3. And this is because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, as we read in Romans 14. 
which means that God sees all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or some translations will say, like filthy rags in Isaiah 64. It is impossible for us to get to God in our own strength. It is no more possible than to take a handful of dust or, or of snow outside and say, okay, build a tower to heaven out of that. In fact, some people in the Bible tried to build their way to heaven. Genesis chapter 11 tells us the story of a group of people who got together and they say, hey, we can build a tower to the heavens so we can make a big name for ourselves. Which, by the way, that's the essence of sin, wanting to make our name great rather than God's name great. And so they build this Tower of Babel and they start building. Here's what the text tells us. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Don't miss the irony there. They're trying to build a tower to the heavens and it says God had to come down to even see it. But that's it's precisely what it's like for you and I to think that we can somehow earn or work our way to him. Despite our best efforts, we are hopeless unless God first draws near to us. Other people answer that by having too high of a view of themselves. Other people answer it by having too low of a view of God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have too low of a view of God this morning. Sometimes when I'm driving on the highway, I'm going five miles over the speed limit, which is what our culture has deemed an acceptable amount of law breaking. And um, uh, what happens is I'm in the right lane and people are just flying by me in the left lane. And I think, hey, I'm invincible. Because if they're gonna pull someone over, of course they're gonna pull over the person going faster than me, right? But just because other people are breaking the law more than me doesn't mean I'm not still breaking the law. And it doesn't mean I still don't deserve punishment for it, although I would prefer not to be pulled over for just heads up. But what happens with God is we think, he's going to let me slide because other people are breaking the law more than I am. Other people are sinning bigger than I am. So I look around and I say, well, actually, I'm invincible. God's going to let me off the hook because he's going to go after so-and-so over there. But God says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished in Exodus 34. And for God to let sin slide on the last day is for God to cease to be God. He cannot be anything other than who he is, and he does not change. He must punish sin, and he will punish sin. And so in reality, every one of us in this room and online thinks far too much of themselves and far too little of God. We think we are better than we really are, and so we think, well, I might be able to get to heaven on my own. And we certainly think God is not as holy as he really is, and so he might just let our sin slide. But the question of the Bible is how does God both uphold his holiness and still bring sinners into his presence? That's the question that, that fuels the narrative of Scripture, and it finds its culmination in the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans says this, There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, we're all in the same boat. We've all sinned and we've fallen short of his glory. He is holy, we are not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation and atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. And it says this is how he is able to be just and the justifier. You see, how does God maintain his holiness and still dwell with sinful human beings? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. For there the righteous wrath of the holy triune God was satisfied. 
Sin was punished, and yet it was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who bore the wrath of Father, Son, and Spirit in the place of his people so that we might be near to God without being consumed. It is grace that teaches my heart to fear, but it is grace that my fears relieve. And because of this, we can share in the joy of our Lord forever. And it's all because of grace. That verse says, we are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace is, by definition, undeserved. So the moment we think we can earn it, that we think we are worthy of it, is the moment it would no longer be grace. And so when we realize we can never earn or deserve God's favor and his blessing, and that the most our efforts can do is store up more sin and more judgment, then we gain a deeper appreciation for grace, and we come to realize that this is how God deals with his people. This is what God delights in doing. He longs to be gracious to you. This is how he reveals himself to Moses, right? Moses shows up and says, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. Show me who you are. And how would we answer that? If we say, who is God? Tell me who God is. Here's what God says, Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so you see what's happening is God does not compromise on his holiness. He says he will punish sin and he will judge sin. But what happens is you and I, if you say, well, what's God like? How many of us would lead with that? Say, God is just full of wrath and judgment. But no, 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 God says, you want to know who I am? You want to know the core, deepest part about me? I am a God who is merciful and gracious. I am a God who is slow to anger. I'm a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and I will keep my steadfast love to my people. That is who God is. And this is one of the most fundamental ways in which he is not like you and I. Because all of us want others to be gracious to us, but how many of us want to be gracious to others? There's always a limit to our grace that we show others. When was the last time you showed someone, you treated someone far better than they deserve and did so repeatedly? One of the most fundamental ways God is not like us is because he is far more gracious than any one of us could possibly imagine. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. In this chapter, there's some well-known verses that you have probably heard before where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And what happens is we use these verses as a way of expressing how God is so much bigger than we could ever imagine, which is... True. So use as a way of expressing how God is so unfathomable that we cannot get to the end of knowing about him, which is true. Which means that just because you can't see how God is working doesn't mean he is not. Just because you can't see how God is good in this moment doesn't mean he isn't. But in the context of these verses, do you know why God is saying that? He is saying he is not like us. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours because he is more gracious than we would ever naturally imagine. 
Let's walk through this chapter, Isaiah 55. We'll observe three main things from, this, from these verses. And the first is to come freely because the Lord is gracious. Come freely because the Lord is gracious. Look at the opening verse in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's a call to come to the Lord. Are you thirsty? Have you reached the end of yourself, realizing the things you have tried just aren't working? The things you have tried, the, the work of your hands just can't satisfy the longings in your heart? That the efforts of your hands can't produce the results you most desperately need and long for? And if that's where you are this morning, the Lord simply says to come. You need no money to get there. You need to bring nothing of your own. You need but to come. And the foundation for him to, to say these things, the reason he's able to say these things is because of what has come before that. Isaiah 52 and 53, we read of the suffering servant who is described like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This suffering servant is Jesus the Christ, the promised Messiah who came to die for his people, who came to bear our sins in order to bring us to God. This is the marvelous display of God's grace, which is the foundation And for Isaiah 54 and 55. For example, why can Isaiah 54.10 say, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The basis for the call to freely come to, to, to God is Jesus Christ. And so then we come to Isaiah 55, and it begins with the call, Come to the Lord. You who are thirsty, come and be satisfied. You who have nothing to bring, come and receive the Lord's free gift of grace. And so in light of that, why do you keep running to the things that will never satisfy? Look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? If you are hungry and you have money, wouldn't you buy bread? If you are working and laboring, wouldn't you want to do that which satisfies? I hear this from younger people all the time who they, they want their work to not just be about a paycheck, but about something that, that, that matters, that's meaningful, that has significance. Don't we all long for that? And yet what we come to realize through the course of life is that no amount of work or money will ever drive us to the true, ultimate, and final satisfaction that our souls long for. The only way to get there, paradoxically, is to lay aside our striving, to lay aside our work, to lay aside our money, and to come freely to the only one who can give us what our souls most long for. And what he gives us is good. Continuing in verse 2, listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live. 
That's what we need. That's what we long for. And the Lord gives what is good. He gives life and joy. And the only thing we must do is come to him, falling before the Lord at the foot of the cross, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ rather than our own. It cost him his life, but because of that, he freely offers it to us. Come freely because the Lord is gracious. And in his grace and his mercy and his compassion, he loves us with a covenantal love. Look at verse 3, the second part of the verse. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now these speak of the covenant that God made with David, who is Israel's greatest king. And God told David, he says, there's going to come one after you who is going to reign on your throne forever and ever and ever in perfect justice and righteousness and holiness. And what it is demonstrating for us is that the way God loves his people is with a covenantal love. A covenant is a binding agreement. Basically, God obligates himself to fulfill it and is saying to his people, I will love you and I will never break my word. So when you come to God, you are swept up into the covenantal love of a God who can never break his word, will never fail in his promises, and will always love his people. And so this is like Esther when she walks in to meet the king and she wonders, how is he going to respond? Friend, we don't need to wonder how King Jesus will respond to us. He will always hold forth his golden scepter and welcome us into his presence today and for all of eternity. You don't need to wonder how he will respond. So dear friend, come to the Lord and come freely. Lay down your burdens, lay down your striving, lay down your efforts and run to the one who is gracious to forgive. And do so now, come now. Because the Lord is gracious. Since grace is by definition undeserved, it means God doesn't owe it to any of us. You and I don't deserve grace. So verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It implies there may be a time where he is not found, maybe a time where he is not near. See, there is coming a day where the Lord's judgment and his wrath will be poured out upon sin, and there will no longer be an opportunity for repentance or coming to him. It will be too late. And it will not be because God has ceased to be gracious, but will be because he is treating human beings as they deserve. As R.C. Sproul has said, God, has, God will never treat anybody unjustly. He will treat some exactly how they deserve and others far better than they deserve. God is patient, but he will not wait forever. Do not presume that a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, you'll just be able to come. But come now while you hear his voice. Come when he offers to you. Seek him today and you know how God will respond. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to question. You don't have to try to figure it out. God tells us, here's how he will respond to you. He will show you grace and mercy and compassion and love. You can come now because you know you will find a God who is full of mercy and compassion and ready to forgive. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. We are sinners. 
We're the wicked and unrighteous that this verse speaks about. Our thoughts and our ways are evil and we must repent. The reason the suffering servant had to die at all was to bear our sins, was because of our rebellion. We are far worse than we ever dared imagine. And yet when we turn from our sin and turn to the Lord, you know how he's gonna respond? With compassion and pardon. God is far more gracious than we ever dared hope. And this is how he will meet you. You know what to expect. When you come to the Lord, you will be met with compassion. You'll be met with grace. You'll be met with mercy. You'll be met with pardon. Your sins paid for by love. Your life transformed by grace and your heart captivated by joy. But I know some of you are saying that's too good to be true. You don't know what I've done. And you think all hope is lost for me now. You think, well, I'm far too sinful to actually encounter the grace of God. Because you look at your life, you see how it's all fallen apart. And you're trying to hide it from other people because you know if they really knew how much of a mess your life was, if they really knew what was going on in your heart, they would never love you. Just like you can never love yourself. And you think God must be the same. But this is why we must be reminded God is not like us. Look what he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It may be true that no one else in your life, including yourself, would possibly show you grace because of what you have done, but God is far more gracious than you will possibly imagine. His ways are not like ours. His thoughts are not like ours. And so on the one hand, this does show us just how sinful we are because God is not like us. We see that the, the wicked are to forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Why? Because God's ways and God's thoughts are not like ours. They are higher than ours. So we must forsake those ways, turn from them, repent and turn to the Lord, but we will find him gracious and ready to forgive and pardon. Because contextually here, God is far more gracious than you and I ever would be. God forgives far more than you and I ever would forgive. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells this story about a son who comes to his father and basically says, hey, give me my inheritance and I'm going to run off and I basically wish you were dead. And so he runs off and he spends his inheritance on worthless trivialities that cannot satisfy and it leaves him with no money and no satisfaction living amongst the pigs in the pen and he wonders, I wonder how my dad's going to respond if I went back home. Maybe he would welcome me as a servant. And so he sets out. And before he can even get home, his father sees him and runs toward him and embraces him in a hug and welcomes him home. Friend, you don't have to wonder how God will respond to you if you turn and come to him. He tells you in his word, I will welcome you with grace and mercy and pardon. If you find yourself this morning broken down by life, if you've reached the end of your rope, if you find yourself in the midst of a mess of your own sinful doing, you don't have to wonder, how's God going to respond to me now? You will find the Father with arms open wide, ready to embrace you on the basis of the work of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Calvin observed this about the verse, because it is difficult to remove terror from trembling minds, Isaiah draws an argument from the nature of God. 
that he will be ready to pardon and to be reconciled. In other words, what he's saying is this, because it's our own nature and our minds to tremble at the thought of, of, of our sin compared to God, we have to be reminded. The reason these verses are in here is to remind us and to make clear to us that God is not like us. Because, see, you and I think God's like me, which is a frightening thought in our sin. Commenting on this, Dane Ortland writes in his fantastic book, Gentle and Lowly, he says, Calvin notes that some interpret the phrase, my thoughts are not your thoughts, to be a sheer distancing between God and us, expressing the enormous gulf between sacred divinity and profane humanity. Yet Calvin saw, in fact, the flow of the passage is in exactly the opposite direction. There is indeed a great distance between God and us. We think small thoughts of God's heart. But he knows his heart is inviolably, expansively, and invincibly set on us. See, God knows that you're skeptical. He knows that you think this is too good to be true. He knows that you think there's no way after all I've done that I will be met with grace. God knows that's where you're at, which is why he said this in his word. I am not like you. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. I will forgive. I will pardon. I will have compassion. I will be gracious. I will be merciful. So come to me. And so come freely, friend, because you have nothing to bring and come now, laying aside your sin and running to God because you know he will welcome you with compassion and pardon because he is gracious. And this is why we can come confidently because the Lord is gracious. We know that God will, will do what he sets out to do. God forms his people, he builds his church, and he does his work all by the power of his word. And we can trust that God's word will never return void. Look at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Right, so what he's saying is God's word bears fruit in season and it accomplishes everything God sets out to do. So again, we saw a snowstorm this week, and you see snow and rain and how it waters the earth and it brings forth life and vegetation and growth. And God says the same thing happens with my word. It comes from heaven and it brings life and growth on the earth. The Bible tells us it is hearing the word of God that brings salvation. Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Which is why in the book of Acts we read this, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. God's command to be fruitful and multiply is being fulfilled by his word. And so Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God's word is not merely the declaration about how we are saved. God's word is the, the, the means the spirit of God uses to bring us to faith and to grow us in the Lord. God sends his word and it accomplishes everything he purposes to do through it. And you say, well, what are those purposes? We see one of them picking it up in verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. See, the Lord designs the fruit of our faith, which is grown by his word, should be a joyful singing and rejoicing in the Lord. That's what we are called to do. 
And we can approach him with confident joy because we know that what God sets out to do in his word, he will accomplish. And so when God says, come to me and I will welcome you with with pardon and forgiveness and compassion and mercy and grace, we know he will accomplish that because he has said he will do so by his word. So come freely, come now, come confidently because the Lord is gracious. So I want to apply this to us now in three different ways. First, to you individually. Second, to you as you think about those around you. And third, to you as you think about us as a church corporately. First, let me apply it to you individually. Do you treasure God's grace in your life? Do you treasure God's grace in your life? Or has grace ceased to amaze you? Have you grown so familiar with it that it's really stopped captivating your heart on a daily basis. For example, are you amazed by what 2 Corinthians 8 9 tells us? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. All that we have, every good thing, is because of God's grace to us, which means that every day, All the time, we have reminders all around us of God's grace, and we will always have reason to celebrate and praise him for it. It's not because of us, and this brings us great comfort and rest and peace. Because we live in a time where there's always more we could be doing. When you jump on social media or the internet, you are confronted every time with a dozen needs or opportunities you could be a part of. And all of a sudden, it just quickly becomes overwhelming because all of a sudden, the focus is no longer on the three or four or five things you're doing, but on the 10 things you're not. And so you feel guilty that that you're just not doing enough. And so this can happen in the church world too. We have so many different ministries and heaping more and more and more and more upon you. And you just kind of feel the burden and burden and burden saying, God, I thought you said your yoke was light, but it feels like a burden to me. But grace reminds us to pause and to rest because we are not God. And your acceptance with him does not depend upon what you do or how much you do or how well you do it, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ and him alone. Grace is not a message of do, but of done. And everything we are called to do in response to grace is actually only through grace in the first place. Grace causes us to be humble. James 4, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace causes us to have hope. Titus 3, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace causes us to have confidence in approaching God. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace causes us to believe that Christ is enough, 2 Corinthians 12. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace causes us to serve one another, 1 Peter 4. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so herein lies the paradox of the Christian life. We strive, but all by grace. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. All that we do is because of grace. 
And yet it can become so easy for us to subtly slip back into the temptation to think that it all depends upon us. And we think, well, we got to do more and more and more thinking. Grace is designed to keep more onto us where it's really what frees us of it. But rather than freeing us and leaving us aimless and wondering, well, what do I do with my life now? Grace is what transforms our life to follow God all the more in righteousness and holiness and love and faithfulness, treasuring him as the supreme joy of our hearts. Again, Dane Ortland writing this, the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away and being replaced slowly by God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. See, one of the reasons that Dan and I are preaching this series, it's actually what motivates all, all that we preach, is this foundational conviction that what you think about God will shape the way that you live. If you think of God as distant, then you'll think, well, I'm free to do whatever I want with my life. If you think of God as harsh, you will work and work and work and try to earn his favor and never do enough. But if you think of God as full of grace and mercy, steadfast love and compassion towards you in Christ, you will worship him and you will show that love with how you love others. You will then realize why Jesus commended Mary for sitting at his feet and listening to him rather than Martha for doing all the work. And so run a spiritual diagnostic test on your heart this morning. Are you resting on the finished work of Christ or are you resting on your own? Are you trusting Christ's grace through you or are you trusting your works for more grace? Where do you distrust God's goodness toward you? Where do you doubt that his grace is really enough for you? Where do you need to sit and listen to him through his word and allow him to redefine how you view him and allow him to set the terms on which he loves you? One of my most favorite musical groups is City of Light. Last year, they actually... Outside of Star Wars music, they're the one I listen to the most, which is saying a lot. Um, and uh, their song, Good and Gracious King, is a beautiful testament to what a life looks like captivated by grace. They say, I approach the throne of glory, nothing in my hands I bring, but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. I will give to you my burden as you give to me your strength. Come and fill me with your spirit as I sing to you this praise. Oh, what grace that you would see me as your child and as your friend. Safe, secure in you forever, I pour out my praise again. You deserve the greater glory. And overcome, I lift my voice to the king in need of nothing. Empty-handed, I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory. And overcome, with joy I sing, by your love I am accepted. You're a good and a gracious king. That's the cry of a heart captivated by grace. And I wonder, is that where you are at this morning? Are you still amazed by grace?
Remind yourself of the gospel on a daily basis and trust in Christ all the more. And as you do so, we're called to tell others of his grace as well. Do you proclaim God's grace to others? Do you proclaim God's grace to others? Actually, this is what Paul said motivated his entire life. Acts chapter 20, he says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was what drove Paul's life, was to say, hey, listen, uh, you know, it's not about me. It's not about my life. It's not about my wants or my desires or, or what's going to be best for me. It's about I want to leverage my life to tell others about the gospel of the grace of God. Is that what motivates your life? This means first, you must share the gospel. You must share it. If faith does come from hearing, as we read earlier, and God does work by his word, as we read earlier, and if God's word always accomplishes his purposes, as we read earlier, then we must use words and proclaim the word of God, which tells others of the gospel of grace. A weary and broken world longs for hope, and we have it. We have the message that you can lay down your striving and come to the gracious God who is ready to forgive. And so you must share it, but you also must show it. Show the grace of God to others. If you claim to have been transformed by the grace of God and don't show it to one another, it calls into question whether you have experienced it in the first place. Jesus told the story about a, a parable about a man who was forgiven a massive debt. And this man turned around and didn't forgive someone else of a much smaller debt. And Jesus basically is saying, well, it showed he didn't really understand forgiveness. And you and I have been shown infinite grace. And if we don't turn around and show grace to, to others, treating them better than they deserve, just like God has treated us better than we deserve, we are not bearing witness with our lives to the gospel of God's grace. God's grace makes us gracious to others. So we model with our interactions in word and in deed with those around us. So we share it, we show it, and we trust it. This is the hardest one of all. We trust God's grace to work in the lives of those around us. In some, some regard, it's easy to share the message about grace. It's harder to show it to others, but even still, that's something that we feel is within our control. But to trust God's grace to work in the hearts of someone else is where faith really meets the road. Who is it in your life that you've kind of written off and you think there's no way they would ever come to faith? Who is it that you say they're so far gone, kind of beyond hope? Well, that's showing you maybe who needs to rise to the top of your prayer list because God is gracious and there is not a single depth in any human heart, no sin, no darkness that the grace of God cannot reach. And the reason we know that with such clarity is because he has told us in his word and because we have seen it in our lives. And so we trust him to work. But we also trust that he and he alone can do this work. We want to rest on all sorts of things, different people, different programs, different methods, and think that's what's going to save them. But the only hope for any sinner coming to faith in Christ is the sovereign work of a gracious God. And this is why we must trust his character and know that God is full of grace and mercy and love and, and, and ask him to work in the hearts of those around us and be praying for them. And so we 
must rely upon grace in our hearts and we must trust grace to work in the hearts of those around us. We share it with them, we show grace to them and we trust God praying that he would do what only he can do in their hearts. And finally, speaking of us corporately as a church, do we celebrate God's grace with the church? Do you celebrate God's grace with the church? Sometimes what happens is when we come to scripture, we apply it to ourselves individually and we don't really get to the part of saying, what does this say to us as a church corporately? But the name grace hangs on the sign out front. And I wonder, are we still as a church amazed by grace? When people come in, do they see us and think, wow, those people are really gracious? Because if we claim to be grace church, we should be all the more gracious. Do we desire others around us to experience the grace of God? And at the heart, do we trust in Christ and his grace or do we trust in something else? See, we're in the midst of a series on worship. And our worship is totally founded upon grace. Grace is the focus of our worship and grace is the foundation of our worship. See, grace must be the focus of our worship when we come together as a church. When we come together on a Sunday morning to gather together to worship, we are celebrating the grace of God shown to sinners like you and I. We gather together as a, re- a group of redeemed people to testify to one another of the marvelous grace of God. And we need to remind one another of this. And we need to be reminded of one, from one another of these things. Our songs, our preaching, our conversations must all be saturated with the grace of God. Because what we're doing is we're reminding one another and we're being reminded by them in the midst of various trials and temptations of life that God's grace is enough. We're reminding and being reminded by the saint who is in the midst of a battle with cancer that grace gives us a joy untouchable by the circumstances of life. We're reminding, being reminded by the saint who is in the throes of grieving the loss of a loved one that grace gives us the hope of eternal life. We are reminding and being reminded by the saint who is in the heat of temptation that grace is sufficient for them. We are reminding and being reminded by the saint who feels the pressure to perform and to do more and more and more that grace is the message of work already done by Christ. We are reminding and being reminded by the saint who feels disconnected and lonely that grace unites us with Christ and unites us with his people. See, if you want an individual experience with God, then put your headphones in and press play. But when we come together as a church on a Sunday morning, you are not just here for yourself. You are here for every single person in this room to proclaim the message of the grace of God to them and to have them proclaim to you the message of the grace of God. Grace must be the focus of our worship. And grace must also be the foundation of our worship. Because I ask you, what is it that makes our worship acceptable to God? We're in the midst of a transition here, Lord willing, but I want you to know that our worship is not accepted by God based on who the senior pastor of Grace Church is. Our worship is not accepted by God based on what style of music we play. Our worship, believe it or not, is not even accepted by God on how excellently we play or we sing or we preach or any of these things. Our worship is accepted by God based purely on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Only he can bring us to God and only in him is God pleased with our worship. And this is why worship leader Bob Coughlin writes this. That's why biblical worship is God-focused, meaning God is clearly seen, God-centered, meaning God is clearly the priority, and God-exalting, meaning God is clearly honored. 
Gathering to praise God cannot be a means to some greater end, such as church growth, evangelism, or personal ministry. God is not a genie we can summon by rubbing the bottle called worship. He doesn't exist to help us get where we really want to go. God is where we want to go. And so God's glory is the end of our worship and not simply a means to something else. See, friends, we need to grow in worship because we need to grow deeper and deeper into the gospel of grace, trusting more and more in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we together gather as a church every Sunday morning. We lift our voices to testify to the fact that God is not a means to an end. Corporate worship is not a vessel for such things, but God and God alone is worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. His grace is enough, and his grace is the only foundation upon which we stand before God, both individually and as a church. And his grace should fill our hearts and our mouths with praise for all of eternity, where we will testify that it is a grace that has brought us safe thus far, and it's grace that will lead us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your stunning grace shown to us. We don't deserve it. There's no way we could earn it. And uh, you freely choose to lavish it upon us. Lord, I pray we will be amazed by your grace in a deeper way, fresh way than maybe we have before. Lord, I pray that we would come to you. If there are those here this morning who are in the midst of striving and the burdens of life and are kind of wondering where to go from here, Lord, I pray that they would hear your call from your word to come. I pray we would lay aside our burdens, lay aside our striving, and come to you. We thank you for your grace shown to us. We praise you for this. I pray that we live accordingly to it, not doing more things trying to, to earn it or, or any of those things, but growing deeper and deeper into the foundation of your grace and showing that to others. So we thank you and praise you for this. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.